Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It is good to be here together and uh, to be able to worship together through song, through uh, communion, through reading of God's word. And, and I just want to encourage some of you, if you were here with us last week at the end of the service, um, we kind of challenged one another to uh, take this, this month of January and read one proverb a day uh, for every day of January. So Proverbs 1 on January the 1st, Proverbs 2 on the 2nd, and continue on. If you have your quiet time, devotional time with the Lord in the morning, that means you're on chapter 5 read today. If you uh, are someone who does in the evening or later on, you're on chapter 4. But there's power... You know, we talk about in our pre-service meeting how beautiful it is that we get to join our voice in the chorus of voices of billions of people who are praising God on Sundays or the 24-hour period, and how we now get to see the power of what happens. It's a picture of heaven that people are singing praises to God with every tribe, every nation, every tongue, being able to, to worship the Lord. Now, we also recognize that there is power when God's people come together and read the word together. And there is power when we're all reading the same things, looking at the same passages, diving in. I have two of my friends who are the pastors over at Trinity Church over here in San Diego. They just are asking their their church to go through 21 days of prayer and fasting again to start off because there's power when God's people do something together. So for us, as we are encouraging and challenging us to to read one proverb a day for the next, for for this whole month, if you're, if you didn't make it there yet, that's okay. You've only got a few to catch up on. Otherwise, join us in this journey as we continue through the book of Proverbs, as we look at lessons in wisdom through Solomon and through the book of Proverbs, which is where we are going to start Um, our sermon today. So if you will join me in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word. Father, we thank you that you are here in this place, Lord, and we thank you for each and every person who hears my voice, whether they're here physically or listening online later. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are with us. And Lord, we we thank you that we have the opportunity to, um, to hear your word and to know that we start off this year, God, with a habit of being in your word together as a church and to see what you might do when your people come together and reading together and discussing and dialoguing and growing. So God, I pray that as we now open up the first seven verses in Proverbs 1, Lord, that I would decrease, that you would increase. God, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. May every person here or every person online later listening May they all have a moment in which they hear you speak so clearly. It's as if you're speaking to them directly. And God, may they say, that's why I came. Not because I'm speaking, Lord, but because you are. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See, today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you have uh, brought your Bible, that's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the church Bible and the seat rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible... I would ask if you feel free to go ahead and take one of those Bibles on the church Bible so that you can have God's word with you. That would be a gift from us to you um, if you'd be interested in that. What better gift for us to give you than the word of God, especially as we're talking through the idea of reading God's word together for this month of January. Now, with that said, I want to talk about this dichotomy we're going to see is the idea of the foolish and the wise. The foolish and the wise, the foolish and the wise is all throughout Proverbs. In order to illustrate this, I want to make make sure something's really clear. Someone who is very, a fool does not mean someone who is unintelligent. Someone who's unintelligent 
that just means, you know, that, that's not what this is talking about. A fool is someone who, who hears what is true or un- hears what God's word says or understands wisdom, but rebukes it and turns it away and says, that's not for me or I'm not interested in that. that and we're going to dive into that definition a little bit later, especially in verse seven, but also in the upcoming weeks. But the reason I want to point that out is that someone can be really smart and still act really foolish. I had a roommate who, uh, when I was at UCSD, it was my first year, so you don't pick your roommates, you just kind of get put together, and, and we, had a, we had a good set of roommates, but there was one roommate um, who was incredibly intelligent. And so when the SATs was out of like 1600, uh, he would get, I think he got like a 15 something, right? So just very smart, uh, very just understood things, but like just acted a fool sometimes and just didn't make basic connections, didn't always know how to interact with people, um, would just kind of be awkward and, and would just kind of just not know how to respond. And, and yet he would do these little, like these things. It's one thing specifically that I'm like, that's just fool. I don't understand it. And so we'd be talking like, so there's a, let's say there's a group of us in our living room and we'd be talking to one another. And all of a sudden there would be like this, like this stench, like this pungent stench. And you look over and you just look at him staring, and he's just burning his own leg hair, and he's just staring at us. I'm like, and burnt hair smells bad. And so it is one of those where he was burning his leg hair, and he's so smart. But I'm like, what are you doing? That's gross, and it's mean, and I don't like you for this moment. And it's just this idea of like, you could be smart, but still act foolish. Many of us are smart people who have done foolish things. We've neglected wisdom or input from people around us. We've heard our parents maybe saying, this is a good thing to do. And we said, yeah, that sounds nice, but let me do my own way. Um, we got Shayla, or so we got uh, Steph for her, for Christmas, we got her this uh, little book from like Barnes and Noble. It's like, what I love about mom. And I asked the girls different questions. Um, and it's one of those where I asked them both the same questions and they're fun, right? There's some really good answers. Um, one of them was like, if you were a scent, what would you be? And Shaylin was like, Jasmine. Like, Steph was like, yeah, I like Jasmine. And Elise was like, grass right after it's mowed. I'm like, she's like, because it smells good. And I'm like, good, that is a very specific answer. Uh, one of them was like, I'm amazed at how quickly you can do the laundry. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what is this stuff? But one of the ones that they said was, you know, I have to admit, you were always right about. And one of the ones that Shailen, or Shailen was like, um, trying new food because she ends up enjoying the new food. And then Elise, I think, was saying, like, not running in the street. And I'm like, yeah, please take that one and remember that one. So these ideas of, like, looking at, you know, there's this wisdom. Like, maybe we hear from our parents, hey, don't run in the street. Don't put your hand on the fire. Don't get in a relationship with someone who doesn't know the Lord. Don't let your, the world around you sway the way you see God. I mean, there are things that intelligent people can do that are unwise, that are foolish. Now, to kind of change gears a little bit, because we're going to talk about the importance of our eyes and how we view things. Uh, I'm going to show an image in, in a, just a moment that um, was one that came out in 2015 online. And, and if you were online at that time, chances are you saw it um, everywhere. And uh, it, was a, it was an image that created, uh, it was very polarizing. It was one in which um, people were dead set that what they saw is what they saw, and yet people w- would be on the exact opposite side of it, and they were dead set that what they saw was right and what they saw was wrong. 
And this is something that it, it, was, it was polarizing, and I want to show it to you. If, and it's just known simply as, if you've heard it before, the dress. If you've seen the dress before, let's show this. So this picture right here uh, is a picture of a dress that was taken and was posted online. And I, there were people that adamantly say that this dress is black and blue. How many of you see black and blue right now on that dress? Now, there are other people who will adamantly say that this dress is white and gold. How many of you see white and gold? Okay, so okay, let's, let's just do this one more time for fun. If you see black and blue, raise your hand. Okay, uh, so I would say a little over half. If you see white and gold, raise your hand. Yep, okay, that's about a fourth or a third. So um, this is the same picture. I'm not doing anything weird with it. It was, a, it was an optical illusion that people did not know how to describe it. So for me, what I see is like, it's kind of like a lightish blue with gold. So I'm just an outlier. Like I just don't make sense. But I don't see black and blue at all. And when I look at this, what it is, is what they talk about is it's based on how you perceive the backlighting. That if you, the backlight, people who... Again, I looked into the science of it. I wish I could explain it more better. Um, but if you see the backlight there as natural light, then it's going to change the way that you see it because you're going to be blocking out the white light behind it and so the black and the blue pops out. If you see that as artificial light, then it's going to be white and gold because you're going to go... Like, again, guys, this doesn't make sense. It's the same picture. And yet, my eyes and your eyes see it differently. Again, let's show, can we show the next picture? So for those of you who don't know how to compare what it looks like, for those of you who see black and blue, you see two images that are black and blue, essentially, right? I mean, like, you see the same thing. For those of you who see white and gold, you see two images that are white and gold, but this paints, this shows us what the other one is seeing. Again, the same eyes, or sorry, the same picture, we have different eyes through which we see things. And it's, it's crazy, because I... I secretly judge all of you because I can't see it. But the answer is the true color of this dress was and is black and blue. And I have no idea how. I don't get it, but I believe it. So this is one of those examples of it's, it's a simple, it's a silly example, but it shows us that our eyes and our perception can change something that is objectively the same. Like, that is a picture of the same dress, but subjectively, the way that we perceive things, the way that we look at things, and our eyes dictate how we receive that information and how that impacts us. And this is something we see throughout God's Word, but specifically in the book of Proverbs, because what we're going to talk about is we add in the section of the wise and the foolish, and then we add in the section of our eyes and our perception. Our main point for us this morning is this, that the foolish do what's right in their own eyes. But the wise do what's right in God's eyes. The foolish do what's right in their own eyes. They see their own perspective, their own way, that God's word doesn't impact them. It's more like if I like something that God's word says, I will add it to what I already believe. But it's not the degree to which those of us who believe God's word and love Jesus and love the Lord say, I'm going to align my life not with what I think and whether the Bible could fit into that, but I'm going to align my life in the wisdom of God's word and I'm going to align myself with it. And so we talk about how are we seeing the world through our own eyes, our own choices, our own desires, our own self-aggrandizement, our own self-promotion, our own wisdom that we think is right. But we can objectively look at God's word and then say, this is objective. It's like a picture of a dress. I'm either going to choose to reject it 
like a fool, the foolish, or I'm going to choose to accept it, receive it, and change my life because of it. And so Charles Swindoll says it this way, that wisdom, wisdom is the ability to look at life and its difficulties from God's point of view, not just from our own, but to see everything we experience through God's eyes. What is it that God wants to do in us? What trial are we experiencing now that, or rather, what trial have we experienced in the past that God has used us to reach someone now, to share his love now? We say, God, I hated that that happened, but I see from your eyes how you could use that for your glory so more people can see life through your eyes. See, we're going to be in Proverbs 1, just the first seven verses, and we're going to look at four characteristics of godly wisdom, not foolishness, but wisdom, just based off of these first four, I'm sorry, these first seven verses here. So four characteristics of godly wisdom. The first one is that godly wisdom is practical because through it, we receive the right skills. It's practical because through it, we receive the right skills. Let's look at Proverbs 1, and then we're going to read just the first part of, or sorry, 1 and the first part of verse 2. Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then you notice there's a colon there, at least in the NIV there is. That's what it's, it's basically saying. Hey, here are the Proverbs. And then the next several verses are what their purpose is. Why are they written down? What is the goal for them there? So the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, one of the purposes for gaining wisdom and instruction. That this idea of instruction talks about not just this um, teaching of you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. This word instruction implies um, this idea of, of rebuke, of correction, of moral discipline. And then this word wisdom that we see there isn't just, again, knowledge, but it's actually tied directly to this idea from Exodus 28 when God gave skilled craftsmen, people who were able to build um, the temp, the, sorry, the tabernacle, and he gave them wisdom in their skills, wisdom in their craftsmanship. So this, these skills are practical skills. People who have skills with their mouth, people who have skills with their hands to build, people who have skills with their brain to compute and to organize and to plan, people who have skills creatively. It's, it's this idea of that there are certain skills that God's wisdom points us to. Now, I want to, before we go on in this point, I want to ask you, have you ever seen someone do something? Something that you have just no ability to be able to do. And you just look at them, you're like, that skill is amazing. Like, I, you know, I would love to play sports. I'm 5'8", five, 5'9", five, on a good day. Like, I'm not able to play sports. Um, and... I don't, have, you know, I don't have those skills. But I was at Global Leadership Summit earlier this year. A group of us went from the church, and, and they have great teachers. Oh, man, that skill is incredible. They have great preachers, great godly wisdom, great leadership insight, even from a, a leadership secular mindset. And they have all these things. And then they would have these little breaks in between, and then there'd be artists who would paint or, or sing or dance. They had a, a special performance that no one knew about, like Rascal Flats came. Like, it was, it was pretty great. Um, yeah, Rascal's a nice guy. That's not his real name. Um, his name's Gary LaVox, which, sidebar, that means Gary the Voice, which feels either, like, predetermined or fake. And I don't know the answer. It's fine. Anyways, um, this video I'm going to watch is a video that we saw there. When I was watching this person start what they started with, like, they're, they're performance. Like, oh, that's kind of cool. 
And then about a little bit into it, you realize this is far beyond anything I could imagine. Will you watch this with me for the next minute, uh, this video together? Yeah, that's incredible, right? Like, I remember having a recorder as a kid and it was brown and I could play like one note. I'm like, I've achieved music. Like, you know, like, it's just this idea that's incredible. So one of the first things I noticed, uh, he's playing the recorder. I'm like, oh, that, that sounds pretty, right? I'm like, I did that when I was four, but he sounds good. And then one thing I noticed, sidebar again, um, that there was something lit like inside of the recorder. So whenever he was putting his finger down, I'm like, it looked like little like uh, little ET like fingers. I'm like, oh, it's so cool. Anyways, so he starts playing, and then all of a sudden he starts beatboxing. Now there is no one else on stage. There are no other sound effects. It is literally him being able to breathe and beatbox while also breathing out and exhaling while making music. And I'm like. That is a skill that I cannot even fathom. And it's incredible. It's incredible to see what it's like when people find out what God has made them to do. Now, am I saying that he's only made to do that? No, but that is a skill that is far beyond, you know, anything that I would ever be able to do. See, there are people who have just these skills, these, these tangible abilities that are so incredible. Another example that I, that I used before is if I say the name Adina Menzel, who knows what Adina Menzel is? Okay, even if you don't know her, you know her voice. She's the one who voiced uh, Elsa from Frozen, um, Frozen 1 and Frozen 2. And she's also the one who, um, uh, what's the word? Opened up the uh, Wicked, the, mu the musical Wicked. She's the one who opened that up in Broadway. And so if you listen to the, music, the Wicked soundtrack, she's the one who plays Elphaba, the main character. And so she's got this powerful, beautiful voice. I mean, I feel like her voice is created to, to be able to, emotes with like through song that's powerful and I we saw Frozen 2 on Shaylin's birthday on November 27th and I wa we watched it again with friends yesterday and I've probably legitimately probably played the soundtrack almost every day in between and I'm like it's just beautiful and I love it and her voice is incredibly gifted she has this very specific skill that I want to point out she has a very specific skill between Frozen and Wicked to play uh women who are, you know, very powerful, but who are afraid of their powers. And in order to be able to get through that, they need to really acknowledge who they've been meant to be. And then they decide to let it go and defy gravity. And they start singing out and they become who they meant to become. And also their names have to start with an EL and they have to end with an A, like Elsa and Elphaba. It's a very specific skill. But no, it's this idea that she has this voice. I'm like, oh my gosh, her voice. Or him being able to play the recorder. There are skills, and God says through skills we have, we have practical skills that he's given us. But in Proverbs, when it's talking about this idea of these um, specific instruction and these, this godly wisdom, 
It's talking about how in Proverbs, we must focus on what it takes to have the skills to be experts in godly living. That you hear the quotation that if someone were to spend 10,000 hours on any specific task, like if I decided today that for the rest of my life, I'm going to spend 10,000 hours playing golf. Never played golf before. I went to driving range once, but that's it. It's like, if I were to do that, by the end of those 10,000 hours, I may not have the natural skill, um, natural proclivity, but I could still be skilled at it. I would be considered an expert at it, even if I'm not good. See, after what it's showing is that we must spend so much time in God's word, learning who he is, choosing not to be foolish and seeing the world through our own eyes, but seeing the world through God's eyes to the point where we are experts in skillful living and godly living, that we have the skills to know how to navigate things. Now, these are really practical things we see in Proverbs. Things like, if you go to a feast, be careful where you eat in front of and do not fill yourself up with too much food if you're in the table with kings. Such as things like, hey, even a fool is thought wise if he holds his tongue. Like these are really practical things that you could learn from. And so we see that there's this idea that we must learn that there are practical things, there's skills that we have. And so in order for us to really take hold of godly wisdom, it means to see how he's created us to use these different things to be skilled in godly living, to take hold of what he says in his word and make it so that we actually just do those tangible things, those practical things to live a godly life. The next part in verse two shows us this part that not just is godly wisdom practical, godly wisdom is also intellectual because through it, we understand the right insight that, that God all knowing through his word allows us to know more that he says this in verse B or verse two B the Proverbs are also there for understanding words of insight for this idea of understanding and knowledge to grow in what we're learning, to not just say that we're done learning and, hey, you know what? I've read Proverbs before in my life. I don't need to read Proverbs now. Or the mindset, hey, I've read the Bible before. Why would I ever need to read the book of Mark again? I mean, I've already read the Bible. I've done it. Or the idea of in your different schoolwork or in your field of work, the idea of I can keep growing and learning and improving, that there's a famous quotation, I believe it's by Bill Hybels, that says, every learner may not be a leader, but every leader must be a learner. We must always grow and never think that we've intellectually achieved everything. Because it's this idea of thinking about if we have a cup of what we're willing to learn and we've been poured into, and then all of a sudden we're full, well then, guess what? We're not done learning. We got to get a bigger cup. We got to take, exchange that tall for a Trenta and just start pouring in more wisdom that God has for us. That we must recognize that we have, the, we have been called to have the mental acumen, the ability mentally to understand words of insight, to understand intellectual things. Does that mean we're all the same intelligence? No, but we have the intelligence to understand God's word. Why? Because we know that God's word is deep enough that the deepest theologian can spend his, his or her whole life in, and it's simple enough that a child can get it to and know that God loves them. And so it's this depth, this beauty here. So this idea of recognizing that simple knowledge might be saying, hey, I know all the capitals of, uh, of, the, of the countries in all the world. 
That is a good, knowledgeable thing. That's a mental thing you can learn. But what Proverbs is talking about to understand the words of insight, insight points us to the idea that it's not just the knowledge, but it's the truth or the questions or the issues behind that basic knowledge. So saying, I know all of the um, countries in the world, I know their capitals, is different than saying, I know how all those countries interact with one another. I know the geopolitical atmosphere. I know all the different things that if this happens and this happens and this happens, I don't know those things. That is insight that sees issues beyond my ability. But there are people, of course, who do. An example we see in the scripture here is that 1 Kings 3, Solomon, who wrote this book, or wrote these, uh, these sorry proverbs here, he had just received in a dream, God had said, hey, what do you want? I'll give you. And he's like, Solomon says, God, give me a discerning heart. Give me wisdom to know how to rule this people well. God, because he was so impressed that Solomon didn't seek fame or wealth, says, because you chose wisdom, I will give you fame and wealth as well. And so his wisdom became well-known and his wealth became well-known. But we see right after that dream that there's a, a case that is brought up in 1 Kings 3 in which there are two moms who each have a baby and they're sleeping in the same bed. And in the night, one of the moms rolls over on her baby and the baby dies. She sees this and she replaces her baby that just died and put it next to the mom of the, the other mom in the bed. And she took the living baby and put it by her. And they go to the, to Solomon. It gets all the way up to, to Solomon's court and says, this mom says, no, her baby's the one that died. My baby's living. It was next to me. This mom says, no, my baby was, that's my baby. And I know that's my baby. And so you took her from me after you rolled over and accidentally killed your, your child. And they start going, no, you, no, you, no, you. And so Solomon says this. He says, give me a sword. Give me a sword and I will cut that baby in half. That way each of you can have half. The one here who lost her child and who stole the baby says, yeah, that's fine with me. That way, you know, we each have the same. But what is the actual mom? The mom of that child says this. No, no, no. I would rather someone else have my baby and my baby live than to have it die, and, and I'd, rather, I'd rather be considered wrong, but have my child live. So then Solomon says, give the baby to this woman, because she's the child's mother. It's obvious, but it's a test of wisdom. It's the ability to see the insight, not the question someone is asking, not the concern someone is raising, but the question behind the question, the concern behind the concern, the insight to go beyond what is in our sight and to go deeper and to know what's really going on. Not just intellect, not just pure knowledge, but to be able to say, okay, now what do I do with that knowledge? And how does that knowledge impact my life? We're able to receive insight, to see issues beyond issues. That when we see someone who's poor, who's homeless, who's, who's hurting, we don't just say, oh, you must, have, you must deserve that. You know, you, you probably did that. It's, it's, well, Jesus also said that the poor will always be with us, and so we want to honor him, but that means if the poor is always with us and we're called to give food to those who are hungry, give drink to, water to those who are thirsty, to give clothes to those who are naked, to welcome those who are strangers into our home, to visit those who are in prison and to visit those who are sick, then, then we better take that to heart and we better see what it looks like in order to really embody that life that's a godly life, that we see beyond just their circumstance. And we see that every person you and I have ever locked eyes with is someone that God the Father created, God the Son died for, and God the Holy Spirit would love to beckon closer to the Father. 
And if we get that, we don't look at people just on the outside. We, we get to have the insight to know how to love them so they can love God from the inside out. Not only is godly wisdom practical, not only is it intellectual. Godly wisdom, verse 3 shows us, is moral because through it we take the right action. We know the right thing to do. Verse 3 says, For receiving instruction in prudent behavior, of knowing what is right and what is wrong. It's a moral thing to say, if you know what is right and we don't do it, what does James 4 say? That is sin for you. And if we know what is right and we choose imprudent behavior or behavior opposite of what we know, then we are no longer called amongst the wise. We are now considered among the foolish. That we know what is right and wrong. And Proverbs has verbiage or, or has um, words like this, the idea of, hey, don't move a boundary stone. And we look at that and we think, well, why does that matter? Don't move a boundary marker. What that means is that you are now trying to, you see your neighbor's land and their crop is better than your crop this year. And so what you do is when no one's looking, you move your stone that is separating your land. You put it about 100 feet this way and they say, no, that's my crop now. In the same way that this mom says, no, that's my baby now. In the same way that we try to cheat people, in the same way that it says in the Proverbs, don't use dishonest scales. Don't have scales that say, oh no, this, this really says this is a, a homer of grain, but really it's not. And so I'm going to sell you less, but I'm still going to make the same amount of money. I mean, it's practical, moral things that say don't do what is wrong. Live with prudent behavior, with right behavior, with a way that honors God. And he continues on in verse 3, that we must do what is right and just and fair. That it is fair to use honest scales. It is just to make sure we reach out to those who are hurting. And it is doing what is right to reach the broken. And out of the bounty we've received to be able to give to those in need. See, we see this embodied by the fact that those, the, the Matthew 25 least of these passages, the feeding those who are hungry, the giving water to those who are thirsty, all those ones that we just mentioned, that the early Christians took that to heart. And so we see in, if you were to search, you know, history of hospitals, even on Wikipedia, it looks at it, and I know Wikipedia can't be used for papers, I get that, but it shows an objective source says that this idea, and it's other places, but this idea that hospitals were first started by Christians. That, well, let me explain that. Hospitals at first were military, so the Romans and the Greeks did it militarily speaking. But for civilians, for those that are just out in the world, it was Christians who took hold of the idea of we should care for those who are sick. We should give food to those who are hungry. We should give water to those who are thirsty. We should, we should visit people and come alongside them. That, that hospitals have come out of the power of God's people seeing the morally right thing to do, to not look at people who are homeless or hurting or poor or wounded and say, that's your fault. You know why? Because when we were falling far from God and when we were still sinners, God didn't just look at us and say, he said, hey, that's your fault. I'm going to solve it for you by sending Jesus. I'm going to make a way where there was no way. And so we see that God's wisdom, godly wisdom is moral. It shows us prudent behavior for ourselves and to do what is righteous and just and fair to help others. We see um, an example. I, I asked her before I shared this story, so to be clear, um, a couple of days ago, I put on um, our social media, on Facebook and Instagram, the, uh, the question, hey, what's one of your New Year's resolutions this year? 
And uh, we, got, we got a few responses, and our very own Linda Ballard wrote. And I want to share uh, what she wrote, because the first thing she wrote, she had a, great, a bunch of great things. The second one, she's like, I'm sorry, I, you only said one. I'm like, no, Linda, you did great. Uh, but here's what she said. She wants to save money to help others. To not buy any clothes this year, to not buy food without checking the pantry, and to make dinners out of the pantry, to help children in Zimbabwe, to help the homeless on the streets of San Diego, to read my Bible daily, to do a devotional every day, to start work on writing a second book. That Notice, wisdom says to save money. But what goes beyond that? What is the right thing to do? Is to say, hey, I can save money. I can also, as Linda says, save money to help others. To help those who are poor across the, nation, or across the world in Zimbabwe and to help those who are poor across the freeway in San Diego. To be able to say that there's a right thing to do. And to be able to just say, this is, you know, this is how I'm going to save money, by not eating, whatever it is. There's an intentional choice to say, okay, there is a right way to be, a right way to love people. And we can't always, we don't necessarily truth people into a relationship with God. We often love them into a relationship with God, and then we share the truth with them. And so we get to be able to see that come to fruition. And God's godly wisdom is moral because it shows us the right thing to do, how we can be the kind of Christ followers God has called us to be. That when I, Andy Stanley, who I mentioned earlier, he or I'll mention in a moment, he talks about how ask yourself a question when it comes to leadership. It says, what would a great leader do? And then do it. You know, not a leader who's insecure, not a leader who's scared, not a leader who's afraid, not a leader who's worried, not a leader who's, you know, whatever it is. What would a great leader do? And then do that. I ask you, what would a great Christ follower do? What would a great Christ follower, not a perfect one, but a great one, well, some of those things would be practical skills. Some of those things would be able to have intellect. Some of those things would be able to know the right way to love people and find ways to help those who are hurting, to fulfill the least of these passage in Matthew 25. doesn't mean we're perfect, but we can strive to be like Christ. The last one, godly wisdom is crucial. It's crucial because through it, we obtain the right direction. Verse 4. It's also for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. See, the simple doesn't mean unintelligent. This is, again, this is a, this is a specific word that doesn't mean someone who is an imbecile or, or, or dumb. This is someone who has not been taught yet. It implies naivete towards God's word, and it implies just not being taught yet. It's like Romans 10 when it says, Paul says, you know, how can someone know if they've not been told about the gospel? So see, we need to have the opportunity to, to have the Proverbs be a way that we can give prudence and wisdom to those who haven't been taught yet, and then also to give knowledge and discretion. That word discretion means like plans. Knowledge and plans to the young. How would we want to raise up our young in order to know the plans God has for them, to plan how to live a life for Jesus? What pitfalls must they avoid and what road must they embrace? Verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Again, no matter how much you've read the Bible, no matter how much you have verses memorized, we are not done learning. As we just said, God's word is simple enough that a child, an unlearned child 
can learn it and know the basics, but it's deep enough that theologians would spend their lives learning, and we can only go deeper still. Because if there's somehow we thought that we could know all there is about God, then that means God is in a rather small box if my finite mind can contain him. No, 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 he's infinite. We can always learn, always grow, always add to our learning and get guidance. And this word in verse 5, this idea of guidance, paints the picture of, of steering a ship, of recognizing that when we have godly wisdom, it's crucial for us to receive godly wisdom because what we do with that and how, what we allow ourselves to take in will dictate how we steer our lives, which direction we will go. We must obtain the right direction so that we're not going away from where God has us, but we're following the path he wants for us. That we see this example of, of when it comes to um, orienteering, and, and we've used this before, orienteering, like using a compass and saying, okay, you need to go this far in this direction at this degree. So it's like if we were to say, okay, we're going here and we need to go one degree difference. One degree difference. And if you were to take that 30 miles down the road, you'd start here and we say, okay, I want to go the direction towards the Lord. I want to do that. I don't want to be foolish. But then all of a sudden, if you say, well, you know, I, I don't really need time with the Lord. I've already had time with him before. I don't need to read God's word. I've already read it before. I don't need to go to church. I've been to church before. I don't need to listen to God in prayer because I've never heard him before. And I don't even know what that's, I mean, whatever it is, all of a sudden it's these small little missteps and all it takes is one degree difference that all of a sudden is a one degree difference starts to get us when you go 30 miles down the road, all of a sudden you were to start here and your life is drastically different than where you planned it being because of a one degree difference. And, and if we think that because we're wise or learned that we no longer need to learn, well, that's the start of your one-degree failure or your one-degree misstep. And if we were to take that one-degree difference from here and to go out, that would be however many miles away. But imagine a one-degree difference from here to 30 years from now. You look back in, your, in, in 30 years from now, and you look and say, how did I get so far off? Where did I miss it? How did I lose my way? How did I go astray? Well, it's because if we have just a one degree difference and we pursue that direction for our whole lives, it can take us drastically off the path that God has for us. The example of this is again from Andy Stanley, the principle of the path. We talked about this briefly last year. The principle of the path tells us this. Direction, not intention, determines destination. Direction, not intention, determines destination. We're talking about the importance of having a direction that lines us up with the word of the Lord because we can have all the good intentions in the world. We can say, listen, I, I intend to know God more this year. But if all of my free time is spent on watching TV or looking at sports or getting caught up in drama, I mean, whatever it is, if I do that and I fill all my time with those things, I could be well-intentioned, but I'll be a well-intentioned fool that never experiences true transformation because my destination will be what I intend to do, not where I've directed myself to do. An example of this would be, we were here cleaning up the, the Christmas uh, decorations on Friday night, and we brought our family here so that uh, the girls can help serve and just be a part of, part of church and what church looks like. It's not just daddy's job, it's our calling to be part of a church and serve. And so we were doing this, and so 
They were putting all the like uh, fake snow away, and, and that was like a job that we knew we could ha- uh, they could handle. And while we we're kind of talking, Art and I were kind of just looking at like you know stage right and stage left. So for me, stage right is here, but to you, that's 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 your left hand, right? So we're talking about. Well, I was like, well, you could say like you know the east side of the stage and the west side of the stage. And Art correctly was like, yeah, but sometimes it's hard for people to know like which way is north and which way is south and, you know, what direction that is. And so Elise, my youngest, was hearing us talk about this. And she's like, well, you know, why? Or uh, Shayla and Elise were like, well, why does it matter if like you don't know the direction? I was like, well, honey, if we leave here tonight and we say we intend to go home, which is north in Escondido, if we don't know which way north is, we could intend to go home, but our, where we end up might be Mexico. Because... I, can int- I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home, but if my car's pointing south, I won't make it to Escondido. That direction, non-intention determines destination. I can intend to sin less or read more. And there's this idea of the difference between trying and training. Trying implies an act of the will that I'm just, I'm going to try really hard not to sin this year. I'm going to try really hard to be organized. I'm going to try really hard to lose weight. I'm going to try really hard to do whatever it is we might want to do. But trying is kind of like me saying, hey, you know what? I found out that there's a marathon next week. I'm going to go out and try and see how well I can do. Without working on it, without having any plan, just showing up. Hey, how far can I? I'm just going to try it. Training. Training is what happens when, if I know I'm going to do a marathon, I plan out and I start looking at how many miles I have to run every day. When do I have my rest days? What does that look like? And then when the day of the marathon comes, you're ready. Not because you tried really hard and intended to do well, but because you trained really hard and now you're ready to do well. That we must be skilled in God's word so that we're not just trying to not sin. We're so trained to avert our eyes from temptation that we don't even fall into it anymore. That we don't just try to be better at quiet times. We set our alarm 30 minutes earlier. We have a plan. We read something. I mean, whatever it is, we don't just try harder. We train smarter. The direction, non-intention, determines destination. Verse 6. We understand Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And then verse 7. The fear of the Lord. This is the crux of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. When I was a junior in high school, I was in an English honors class, and I remember the first thing the teacher said to us was the idea that the smartest people are not the ones who know how much they know. The smartest people are the ones who realize how much they have yet to learn. The idea that if we think, again, that our cup is full, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm super smart now. We need a bigger cup. If we think we know who God is, we need a bigger box and to recognize he's going to blow out that box too. So we see that the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge, is the fear of the Lord, a right relationship with God, of being fearful of the fact that he truly is God. And that reverence, that awe of recognizing that somehow the God of all the universe who holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand somehow saw fit to create me and breathe life into me and bring me to a place where I recognize that Jesus loves me enough so I can spend eternity with that great big God and recognizing that because of that, that's the beginning of wisdom. It's do we go the foolish way and live our own way in our own eyes? Or do we live according to the godly wisdom of God's eyes and see the world through that and have the wisdom, as Charles Swindoll says, to see the, way, see the world the way God sees it? 
when, because all of us have to decide whether we will be a foolish builder who will build our life on our own eyes, on our own idea of wisdom, on what the world tells us, which is embodied in Matthew 7 in the image of a, a house being built on shifting sand. Or will we build our house upon the godly wisdom that is practical, that is intellectual, that is moral, that is crucial, that shows us that if we build our life on the words of Jesus, on the word of God, and on the character of Jesus, that he is who he says he is, he's done what he says he's done, so we are as free as he says we are free. If we believe in that and live on that and build our lives upon that, then what that means is that we will have our house built upon the rock. Both builders of these houses would have to use their eyes to determine which is a good place to, to build. In the foolish eyes, sand is a good place to build. It'll be cheaper. It'll be easier. Location, whatever. This one sees with their eyes the godly wisdom that you build upon a foundation. And there's no other foundation that could be later than Christ Jesus. And so we all must decide where will we build our homes? Where will we build our lives? And whose eyes will we see the world? Shailen's very first word when, uh, you know, many, many years ago, She's, you know, because babies can say like mama and dada. And so, you know, I forget how old she was, but she was like eyes. And we're like, Steph was like, did you just say eyes? She goes, eyes. And we're like, you get it. Like, you really get it. We talked about how theologians, we could look at Proverbs and we could dive into that. And we could dive into the impact of our eyes. But God's word is so deep that even the theologians could spend decades learning it. And sometimes, just sometimes, the faith of a child or the words of a child can point us to great truths. That her first word was eyes. Was it because she had this theological revelation at the age of 12 months? No. But does it show us the importance of what we do with our eyes? Do we see it through God's, sorry, God's word or through the world's word. Luke 11 close says this, your eye, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What does that tell us? It tells us that what we allow into our hearts and our bodies through our eyes impacts everything. If we allow ourselves to see things we shouldn't see, if we turn our eyes towards temptation rather than away from it, if when we see something that is unjust and morally wrong, we don't speak up, if we just fix our eyes on whatever the world says is shiny and new and special. Well, then brick by brick, mortar by mortar, step by step, we are building our lives through the world's eyes, through our own eyes on shifting sand. But if we build our lives on God's word and fix our eyes not on that which tempts us and with which we struggle, but fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith who came and experienced temptation and yet did not sin, who has struggled for us and for us and fought for our freedom through his death. If we do that, we fix our eyes upon the salvation or the author and perfecter of our salvation, then we don't sink within the sand on a foundation. We get to walk on water. We build our lives upon him alone. What is it that you and I are fixing our eyes on? 
Are we seeing the world through the, the, the lives through the world's way? Through their eyes? Because the foolish do what's right in their own eyes. But the wise do what's right in God's eyes. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we pray that as you speak through your word, that there may be times where it's, uh, we wrestle with it and it can be hard. But Lord, sometimes when we love someone, we need to have hard conversations. And maybe you love us right now and have a hard conversation and a hard thing to process. Maybe we've seen with our eyes today that you've dropped the scale from our eyes to show us that we have been living according to what the world says in worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. Lord, what would it look like for us to say, what would a great Christ follower do in our manner of worship, in our manner of our word, in the manner of our relationships with others, in the manner of sharing our faith, in the manner of growing in you? What would a great Christ follower do? And how could we do that? By leaning into your wisdom, God. And by seeing this world, not through the world's eyes, but through your eyes, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.